Ian Kruger leads the, the Rondebosch PM congregation. He's no stranger to us. Welcome. Love to hear what God says to you. Thank you. No tent, yeah, but there was a generator this morning, so you made up for it, yeah. It's always a venture church, something. As I was saying to the, we, um, in Ronnebosch, PM, we, well, Bosch, our venue is linked to the Red Cross Children's Hospital, so we never get load shedding. It's just, we're basically God's favorite children, so that's how. <laughs> um, no, we love adventure church, that's the way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I've just flown over. Um, excited what God's been doing through His Word and excited what He wants to do with us um, as we meet. So, a little bit about myself. As has been said, my name's Ian. I lead the congregation in Bosch PM along with an amazing bunch of elders. Uh, I come to you this morning a little bit tender, not emotionally, but physically. So, in my family, um, uh, I got sick. You know, the virus that's going around. If you haven't had it, you're very lucky. And I got very close to my toilet bowl, throwing up into it. And then it went to my daughter a few days later, and she's never been sick like that in her life before, and it was quite funny watching, well, I shouldn't say that, but it was <laughs> quite funny watching her experience sickness for the first time. Her word for sore is Aina, and she's basically going, Aina, 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 she's just Aina everywhere, but didn't actually know where it was for like two days. And then I went to my wife, and then it just looped back to me on Friday. So I was... Yeah, up the, whole, the only thing I've hugged in the last weekend is my toilet bowl, so I'm feeling very lonely inside for myself. So if the energy sags, have grace for me, but I'm trusting that God's going to do amazing stuff with us this morning. So that was overshare, wasn't it? Anyway, so okay, um, here we go. So we are in this wonderful series in the book of Mark, and uh, we've called the series Good News That Lasts. And I think we're hungry for good news at, at last. I think we're, we're hungry for anything that comes to us as good news. We, we live in a culture and a society and a world where we are so connected. But there's also the reality that uh, people make money off getting us to click on stuff as we engage with our phones and as we engage online. That if we click through things, people make money off of it. And the way that they've realized is if we grab people's emotions, they're going to click. And one of the strongest emotions that they can grab is anger. Anger is one of those emotions that causes us to actually act and do something. So the, the, God is good journalism and in with whatever is going to make people angry. And then we'll just keep feeding people things that make them angry so that they click deeper and deeper and deeper into our news. What I've found is as I get more and more angry clicking and click deeper and deeper into the news, the news gets more and more superficial or shallow. There's less behind each click. But what we, we're investigating as we go through the book of Mark and as we look at good news at last, what we're seeing is that in the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's done and the good news that he's declared to the world, as you go deeper into it, it doesn't get less, it doesn't lose substance. It doesn't get less, it gets greater in its substance. We find greater levels of joy, greater levels of peace, greater levels of rest as we dive into this good news. In fact, this is the only good news that comes with the promise that for all eternity we'll push into this good news and it will keep getting better. That the restedness of our souls will become more rested, will become more peaceful, will become more joyful. So I have great hope for the series that we're going through to do a deep work in us and as we go through the first half of um, the book of Mark throughout the year, that it will have a deep and profound impact on our souls. It will become a more peaceful, restful people as we lean into this good news. 
And so last, for the very first week of the, the mark, we encountered this man, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was this foretold, prophesied person who would declare the way of the king that was to come. And hundreds of years before John came on the scene, there was this message, this declaration in the prophets that there would be one who would declare the coming of Jesus, the one who would declare the coming of the king, the one who would declare the coming of the kingdom. And as we started off Mark, we saw this person, John the Baptist, break onto the scene, come from the wilderness, declaring, it is time, it is here, Jesus is here. And so we had this messenger declaring that something significant has happened, someone significant is here. And then in week two, which I think you guys missed uh, for various reasons, and I'd encourage you to go and download Roger Waugh's sermon. He preached at Bosch, which really unpacks the fullness of this moment. Um, and so if you haven't heard it, I'm just going to give a quick summary. We, we, went to, we switched from John the Baptist declaring that Jesus was coming to Jesus arrives on the scene. And John and him have this interaction where he gets baptized by John, And it's an incredible moment where not only is Jesus here, John's going, this is the one, he's here, he's arrived. And it's not just the messenger saying, this is the one, this is the king, this is what we've been waiting for. We also see in Jesus being baptized, God himself saying, this is the one. And there's a supernatural reality to the baptism of Jesus where it says that the heavens are torn open and a voice declared, the voice of God declared, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit descends on Jesus as a dove, empowering him and also um, as evidence that this is the chosen one. This is the one who was to come. This incredible moment, supernatural moment where it's not just uh, John the Baptist declaring this is Jesus, it's as if the entire creation, as the heavens are ripped open and God himself says, this is my one, this is my son. And so we have this moment, two, not even a chapter in, we've had two moments where we're forced with this question of going, who is this person? Surely someone who has that sort of supernatural baptism into ministry, into the mission that they're on, is surely more than just a man. There's surely more to him than what meets the eye. And then Jesus goes from his baptism, empowered by the Spirit. And what's so interesting is that the Spirit comes down, descends on him in the form of a dove, which is beautiful because Jesus then goes into the wilderness and he contends with the enemies of God in the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness. And so often we think it will be the mighty power of God, warrior king, who would go and fight the enemies of God. But instead what you see is a dove descend onto Jesus. And what Jesus calls himself is the Prince of Peace. It's an incredible reality that the Prince of Peace would bring peace. And he goes off into the wilderness and he contends with the enemies of God, tempted by them to throw away his mission. And he doesn't. And in every way, he does what we could never do in that moment. And it's after that moment now that we've seen the declaration that he's here, the evidence from God himself that, this is, that Jesus is significant and someone of significance, and then his contending and victory over the enemies of God in terms of he was not tempted to sin. And it's after that moment that we jump into our text this, evening, uh, this morning. And what we're going to see is um, Jesus comes with a message So the long-anticipated one, he is here, and then we get to see his message this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read Mark 1, 14 to 20 together. Father, we love you. We need you. We trust you. You are alive. You are powerfully at work in this world. You are our great hope. You are a great joy. God, in a 
world where news can be bleak, you are one who brings lasting, eternal, glorious, true hope and courage and strength. God, would we freshly see you this morning, Jesus? Would we freshly encounter you? And would you fill us with your peace, Prince of Peace? We love you. We need you. We rest in you. Amen. Okay, let's read these words together of Mark. So, Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. So as I've said, this is the moment. So straight after Jesus has come out the wilderness, we come into this little piece, the story of Jesus' account of Mark, of the life of Jesus. And there's this throwaway line, and John was put in prison. There's no context before or after, that's it. So John, as the messenger of God, gets thrown in prison. And then we hear about Jesus going into the city, uh, the town of Galilee. And as he goes into the town of Galilee, Galilee yeah, that one. I've lost it. Galilee. There we go. Galilee. He goes into town Galilee. He comes with a message. He's got something to say to the people who are in this town Galilee. And then we realize that he doesn't just come with a message, but he comes with a call on their lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the, the message of Jesus, which will be the bulk of today's message. And then we're going to look at the call of Jesus. So that's where we're going. Let's look at that first one, the message of Jesus. Now, after John was arrested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So he comes with this message. But before we unpack the message, we need to decide what we're going to do with the words of Jesus. Because these are the words of Jesus, but what we do with them is actually determine what we've decided about Jesus. So I've said the first two weeks have kind of put us in a position where we really need to ask some questions. They haven't left us able to just have a vague kind of understanding of Jesus. In some ways, they've demanded us, they've compelled us to make a decision about Jesus. Week one, you have John going, he's coming, and you might go, well, who is he? Week two, you have the heavens being torn open and God himself declaring, this is my son, a dove descending on him and him going off into the wilderness and contending with the enemies of God. That forces some questions. That forces us to have some answers, questions that we need to answer about Jesus. Who is he? Is he who he says he is? There's a supernatural reality to him. You see, if you see Jesus as a fraud and a fake, then I would encourage you to not listen to the words of Jesus. If someone is a, is a fraud or a fake person, to listen to their words would be insanity. And if you are a Christ follower, and you genuinely believe that he is who he says he is, the king of the universe, the sustainer and creator of all things, then you should hold his words with incredible awe and reverence. And that there should be a humility in our hearts and our posture towards the words of Jesus that cause us to go, I will obey, I will listen, I will internalize, I will do everything that these words call me to do because they are the very words of the creator of the universe. 
Can you see, before we can handle the words of Jesus, we need to decide who Jesus is. And some of you in this room might not fall into either one of those categories, Christ follower or think he's fake. You might go, well, I'm uncertain about Jesus. Well, if you remain uncertain about Jesus, you're going to remain uncertain about his words. And you're going to struggle to engage with the words of Jesus. And when they're jarring, it's going to be difficult because you haven't settled who the person Jesus is. And if you find yourself in that category this morning, I would really encourage you to journey with us through the book of Mark and really focus on settling the question, who is Jesus? And decide and actually come to a deciding moment where you accept him or reject him. But it's very dangerous to live in uncertainty. So now we, we've realized that we have to handle the words of Jesus correctly. And if you're a Christ follower, can I really encourage you as we go through the book of Mark, as we encounter the first recorded words of Jesus in Mark, that you make a commitment right up front. I've decided that Jesus is who he says he is. If you're a Christ follower, you've done that. Then as we go through the book of Mark, could I ask you to listen out for the words of Jesus and make a commitment on the front end to obey them, to listen to them, and to apply them to your lives to the deepest level. To not pick and choose which words you'll listen to, which words you won't. The fullness of everything Jesus teaches is what we apply to our lives if he is who he says he is. And so now we come to his words here, and we see him say this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe, repent and believe. And so what he says um, right up front is he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. He's saying, you'll wait, your anticipation, all the prophetic words of the Old Testament pointing to the fact that there would be a kingdom that would break in, that there would be a king who would be raised up into this kingdom and would be king of that kingdom, and that that kingdom would change and transform everything for the people of God, and everything that isn't the way it should be would be restored to the way it should be. That was the promise of the Old Testament, and Jesus arrives in Galilee and says, it's here, it's happening. Not fully established, not complete, not in its entirety, but it's here, it has arrived. And it's quite a big statement because what he's saying is, I am the king of that kingdom. Because he's basically saying, it's here because I'm here. I've arrived in Galilee, therefore the kingdom of God has arrived in Galilee. I am its king, and where I am, the kingdom is. And so that's his statement, that's his claim. And then he goes on to say, repent and believe the gospel. And he gives us these two words around repentance and believe. And these two words give us, tell us the nature of the kingdom, what kind of kingdom this is, this repent and believe. Let's look at that first word, repent, and let's see what it says about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that this kingdom of God is not like any kingdom of man. The cultures, the ways, the thoughts, the attitudes, the emotions, the beliefs, the structures in the kingdom of God are nothing like the thoughts, emotions, structures, ways, beliefs of the kingdom of man. They're completely different. They're not the same in any way. Now, how do you get there? Well, through this word repent. You see, this word repent in its simplest form simply means to change your mind. Jesus is saying, hey, this kingdom that I'm bringing in is going to require you to change your mind about everything. And the reason that you need to change your mind is because the current way that you do things and the current way that the world does things and the current way that the kingdoms of the world does things are not compatible and do not fit into the ways of the kingdom. So the only way that you're going to move and get access to the kingdom of God out of these kingdoms is to change your mind about everything. We need to reorientate our lives, thinking, feeling, and doing 
in order to step into this new kingdom. And it's interesting because I don't think many of us would actually argue against that. When we look around and we hear the news and we see what's going on in this world, it really doesn't feel like the way we're currently doing things is the right way to be doing things. It really does feel that the world's not the way it should be. Our lives aren't the way they should be. So I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, this isn't hard for us to believe, that they, if God was going to break into this world with his kingdom, that it would probably be a very different kingdom to the way we're doing things, and that we'd probably need to change our mind around a few things to step into his kingdom. But I've come to learn as a pastor in my own life and as a pastor that we don't like, inherently like this idea of repentance. There's something in us that pushes back against changing our mind. We're inherently people who like to think that we've got it right. Ask any wife in the room speaking to their husband. I have this inbuilt desire. When Laura goes, Ian, you have a blind spot. I'm like, no, I don't have a blind spot. You have a blind spot. And I have this immediate knee-jerk reaction to defend my way of thinking, feeling, and doing because I'm selfish, because I'm prideful. And it's built into the human race. So as soon as someone comes to us and says, hey, you need to repent, you need to change your mind, our natural reaction is, no, I don't. I don't need to change my mind. I'm pretty sure I'm good on my own. And so we don't always see this news where Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, repent. We don't always see it as good news because there's this objection built into our hearts to reject anyone telling us what to do, basically. But it's interesting because Mark doesn't have that response to this message. Look what he says in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the gospel, the good news of God. Mark summarizes what Jesus is about to say as good news, that this is really, really good news, that he declares that the kingdom of God is here and that we need to repent. So why don't we see this as good news? Why so often do we not see this message of good news? Or if you're a Christ follower, why does it wash over you as something I've heard before? I think there are two reasons. Well, I think the reason is this, is that we don't understand that repentance is a gift. We don't understand that repentance is a gift. And the reason that we don't see repentance as a gift is because, one, I just don't think we, think we need to repent. I think we think, hey, I'm actually an inherently good person. I'm okay. I don't need to repent. And it's so interesting because this is, again, why the very first question anyone needs to settle is, is Jesus who he says he is? Because if you've already settled that Jesus is the creator of the universe, that he is God, and he comes to us and he says, repent, change your mind about a few things or change your mind about everything, if he is who he says he is, then there should at least be a humility in our heart to go, maybe I'll look into this repenting thing. Maybe I'll look into the reality that I might need to change my mind about a few things. Which is why if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus and you find this quite jarring, this idea of repenting, it's far less jarring once you've settled who Jesus is. So the first reason I don't think we see repentance as a gift is because we don't think we need to repent. And the second reason I don't think we uh, repent or see repentance as a gift is because we assume we are entitled to good news. We assume we are entitled to good news. This one I find so interesting. I think it's a big one. We live in a culture that is incredibly entitled. We're entitled to our rights. We're entitled to this. We're entitled to that. We have an entitlement mentality as a generation like it's never existed before. And I think that extends to, of course, good news. Of course, God's going to step into human history and say, 
Ian, I have good news for you. Of course that's going to be what God says. But what's so interesting is it's, it's, it's an assumption. It's a sense of entitlement that doesn't actually exist if you actually think it out. Because what the reality is, as God steps into human history as creator... He's saying there is a need of repentance. There is a need for you to change your mind. The way you're doing things, you're doing it without reference to me. You're living your life without reference to me. That is offensive to me. And look at the destruction that you're causing amongst yourselves and in this world. And so Jesus steps into human history, and his message could have been, I'm done with you. I'm done with the pain that you cause each other. I'm done with the, the pain that you afflict. I'm done with you. I'm completely within my rights to allow this little blue orb that I've created and sustained to spin off into oblivion and never be seen again. And I'll start again over here. Can you see, we, we're not entitled. We have no rights. We have no ability to determine how the Creator would respond to us. But He, in and of Himself, chooses to step into human history and go repent. And now we start to see why repentance is a gift, because He gives us the opportunity to repent. He didn't need to, but he chooses to move towards us and say, I will make a way for them to change their minds and step into the kingdom of God. We have to be very careful of presuming upon the goodness of God. And as Christ follows, we actually lose joy when we do that. There is something profound, deeply profound, when we go to God not assuming anything and he meets us in kindness and grace. And we go, God, I am what I am. You are what you are. I throw myself on your mercy. And he says, I will show you mercy. I will give you the gift of repentance. And repentance really is a gift. It's a massive gift for anybody who's able to be honest. It's a massive gift for anybody who's actually spent some time in solitude and quiet and really considered the state of their own heart. Because I don't think anyone in this room is let off the hook in terms of moments that you regret, darkness that you've seen in yourself where you're a bit ashamed that that thought, that feeling, that emotional, that act exists. I know in my life that there are things where I go, I've said to myself, I will never be that kind of person. And a few years later, I look back and I go, I am that kind of person. And what do you do with that? What do you do with the things that you're ashamed of? What do you do with the things that you know are just ugly about yourself? What do you do with the things that you know are just darkness? What do you do with those things? We're not inherently good. If you look around the world, it's the way it is because humans live within this world. And if you look within your heart, and you're honest, you know that there's stuff that you really regret deeply. There are things I have done where I'm like, I don't know where that came from, but it's ugly. And I have to admit that it came from within myself. And the very fact that Jesus would come to us and say, I'm going to give you the gift of repentance, means that we have somewhere to take that ugliness. means that we have somewhere to take our shame. We have somewhere to take our guilt, which makes it an incredible gift. You see, the world would say, the way you deal with your ugliness is you hide it. Instagram. You do not Instagram the argument you have with your wife. You do not Instagram that thing you do early in the morning when you're alone in front of your computer. 
You don't Instagram that stuff. You Instagram the holiday. And you Instagram the hike up the mountain. You Instagram the coffee that you're drinking. And you actually just hide the ugliness and you just present what you consider to be the beauty. But what I've seen is as people hide ugliness, what happens is it grows. Ugliness loves darkness. Ugliness loves hiddenness. Sin loves hiddenness. And this might be heavy and it might be intense, but I'm going through a bunch of pastorals at the moment where this is so real. Across multiple churches, I've seen guys who, who should have just repented and said, hey, my wife, my friend, my community, my eyes are lingering and I'm treating women like objects and my eyes are lingering. They should have just repented at that point, but they didn't. They suppressed it and pushed it down and it became full-blown pornography addictions into full-blown sleeping with prostitutes. Christ followers who had said, I, would, I never thought I would become that sort of person because they chose to hide the ugliness. Or, or people I sit down with who are lovely, kind people, and suddenly there is anger and hate and bitterness which literally distorts their face when they talk about people. And what that is, is it's the ugliness, it's the, the resentment, it's the undoubt with stuff pressed down and allowed to grow in darkness till it gets to the point where it comes up in full-blown bitterness and hate for another human. I'm just going to blame other people for the way that my life is going and for the shame and the guilt and the things in my life that I don't like. I'm going to blame others. The problem with that, it leaves you a victim and victims are powerless and victims are always a slave. The other thing we can do is we can embrace the ugliness. We see that in capitalism where people just like, more for me, more for me, more for me, more for me. Unchecked greed. And it's just take, take, take. We also see it in, in genocides and atrocities that people do where they just full-on embraced the ugliness and gone, this is who I am, this is what I'll do. I'm going to make my life entirely about myself. We normally call those people jerks, but jerks have become an acceptable way to do our lives these days. We just embrace the ugliness. But Jesus offers us another way. Jesus offers us the gift of repentance where we get to take that in and of ourselves, which is ugly, shameful, embarrassing, that we feel guilt for. We get to own it. This is in me. And we get to come to the person of Jesus and say, take it from me. And as we go through the book of Mark, we're going to see that Jesus carries that sin, that guilt, that shame, that ugliness all the way to the cross.